I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of Genesis. Our scripture reading is going to be Genesis chapter 4, the entire chapter. Uh, on the back side of the insert is something that I, I'm calling your attention to it, but not to read right now because it's entitled Beyond the Sermon. That means after the sermon. That means some comments that might even be helpful to putting the sermon in its context. Um, but to relate what we're actually doing through our sermon series this year. As we've said before, one of the most significant things that Jesus said on the day of resurrection was how he explained to his disciples that what happened in Jerusalem should not have truly caught them by surprise. How the scriptures had predicted that the Christ would come and suffer and die and then rise again, and that the forgiveness of sins would be preached to all the world in his name. And we're told that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And so our sermon course through this year is to retrace what we know from the New Testament about how Jesus, in fact, has been preached throughout all the scriptures. And beginning with Moses, which means beginning with creation and the fall, and then the storyline of redemption, all the way through, so that as people of the book, we can understand the first part of the book, how in fact it also is as much about Christ ultimately as is the New Testament. Now we come to Genesis chapter 4, and uh, I want us to uh, uh, follow along carefully. Sometimes <coughs> uh, these earlier stories are things we might have heard so often in Sunday school, uh, we might have been raised in the church. Uh, but we might not have paid close enough attention to the kinds of things that are going on within the chapter. I'll just mention a couple of things we need to appreciate. The Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God. All of Scripture, every part of Scripture, every passage of Scripture. Uh, sovereignly designed by God to tell his message, to speak his truth. That's important. Secondly, we sometimes think that those who wrote thousands of years ago were in some sense more primitive than we are. And therefore, we might not or ought not to expect in the stories which they have written subtle complexities or depths of literary expression that we've only discovered, let's say, since Shakespeare. Now, C.S. Lewis was one who said again and again, the idea that the ancients were less sophisticated than we are is chronological snobbery. It's the snobbery of thinking that we in the 20th and 21st century s understand the world and the things of the world and understand ancient literature and those things so much better than they could themselves. In fact, it's the contemporary arrogance to believe that we today, and I mean the critics of the Bible, understand the Bible better than those who first wrote it. It's not so. Those who first were the recipients of the Word of God were inspired, illuminated by the Spirit of God in such a way that there are things that go on in the story that they understood, which our Sunday school training or reading or casual reading might cause us to miss because we don't think such things could be there. But they are there. 
And therefore, I wanted to give that introduction before we begin with Genesis chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. But the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its blood, opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon
upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we ask for your grace through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand your truth, the only truth that can save us. Lord, bless the hearing and understanding and receiving of the truth in such a way that we will, we will be honestly, deeply, rightly changed in the manner that you desire to change and transform us into the ever-increasing likeness of your Son. And then we would pray that we would understand what our calling is every day to be salt and light to this world. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. I want to begin by pointing out how we should read this chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 has often been read as a kind of morality story. Uh, little children understand that, see, Cain got angry. And when you get angry, there's sin ready to take, take over you. And if you're not careful, uh, if, if this kind of anger gets in your heart in such a way, look at this, Cain actually killed his brother. So, you should tell God you're sorry, and you should repent of your sin, and you should ask Jesus to help you to live a better life and quit hitting your brother. <laughs> right, right, Liz? Yeah, right. <laughs> now, of course, we want those things to be true. We want our siblings to uh, not be like Cain and Abel. We want them to get along with each other. We, we desire those things. That's not the way this story was written. And that's not the point of this story. Although the morality of the story is significant, it isn't the point of the story. Real, rather, we need to come to chapter 4 and ask ourselves this question. How does this chapter, chapter 4, relate to what's in the previous chapter, especially Genesis 3.15? Now remember, what was Genesis 3.15? It was that great promise of God in the context of judgment really a, a double promise, a promise of judgment upon the serpent, and then a promise of God doing something tremendously wonderful to address what the serpent had done through the seed of the woman. So let me read that promise again from Genesis 3.15 with a little bit of interpretation. What, what God says there concerning the judgment and the promise inherent in that judgment is this. And I will put, he's addressing the serpent, and I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, Eve, and between your offspring and hers. He, her offspring, the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you, the serpent, will strike his heel. So this complex promise tells us God is going to place enmity. We understand the word hostility we get the word enemy from the word enmity. Uh, the word hatred is also not an inappropriate or unapproximate translation of this idea, this concept, this term. It is an issue of deepest adversity, adverse to one another is what's being spoken of in terms of this judgment and promise. So God is going to place that hostility, that, uh, that, that intense feeling of, of enmity, <laughs> hostility uh, against each other, between 
the serpent and Eve, and between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Which is to say, they're going to be in conflict with each other. They're going to exist in this world as enemies. But the final part of the promise is that gracious promise of mercy that the seed of the woman, however that's going to come about in its fulfillment, the seed of the woman is going to deal the serpent a crushing blow. The head's going to be crushed. While the one who is the seed of the woman is going to suffer, but not a deadly blow. His heel is going to be bruised. So we recognize this, as the rest of the Bible recognizes this, as the very first promise of God's deliverer, the Messiah. Now, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, of course, is Christ. This is the promise of redemption. Although we can say Adam and Eve have broken the world by their sin and their rebellion against God, God will send the deliverer to bring redemption, to redeem what has been broken. Now, that's the Bible's big story. Never miss that. There's one great unifying story in all of the Bible. We have broken the world. God has sent his son to unbreak the world, to redeem everything that we have fallen into and broken by our sin. So that's why the story of the Bible is the story of Christ. That's why it's there throughout the whole Old Testament. Now, chapter 4, we have to read it in its context. It is immediately connected to the promise of Genesis 3.15. It tells the story about Eve's three sons. It tells the story about the offspring of Eve. It tells the story about the seed of the woman in the very first generation. But when we look at the story, I hope you noticed that there's something terribly, terribly missing in Genesis chapter 4. But then again, looking at it, it's something that's not missing at all. Now it's with that perspective, something missing that isn't really missing, that we need to come to this chapter. Now, what is the large or big story of this chapter? It's not just about tragedy, though it is tragic. It is a story that essentially is this. God promised there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. In spite of that enmity, between his seed and her seed, God's redemptive plan will not be overthrown. This is what chapter 4 is all about. We see the outworking of Genesis 3.15 in chapter 4. Something's missing that's not missing. But the final conclusion of the story is that God's redemptive plan will not be overthrown in spite of the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, since the promise is central, we can organize chapter 4 around the idea of the promise. First would be, we see in chapter 4 that the promise is accepted and believed. But then secondly, we can see that the promise is in fact threatened. And, there, and in that promise being threatened, the faith of Adam and Eve is deeply tested. But then finally, we can see that the promise is preserved. 
which tells us that God will not allow Genesis 3.15 to go unfulfilled in all of its redemptive meaning and import. Now, let's start with the first. The promise is believed. The promise is Genesis 3.15. Well, how do we know it's believed? Well, we go back to chapter 3 again, and in verse 20, it's, it's uh, Adam's reaction to all that's going on by the way he names Eve. So they've been told about the curse. Uh, they've been told about the pain and childbearing. Uh, they've been told about the fact that the ground is not going to produce easily for Adam. It's going to be by the sweat of his brow. Eventually, they're going to return to dust because dust they are, to dust they shall return. They've been told all those things. We come to Genesis 3.15, or Genesis 3.20, and we read this. The man, or Adam, called his wife's name Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. She would become the mother of all the living. Eve itself can be translated as life giver. Adam named his wife life giver, showing that he understood the promise of Genesis 3.15, that she was going to have seed. She was going to have offspring. All of the living human race was going to be descended from her. Adam and Eve accepted, embraced, and believed in the promise. But also, beginning of chapter 4, we see that the promise is being fulfilled, and they embraced it. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived Cain. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. So, obviously, in order for the promise to move forward, Eve had to have children. But note her response to having her firstborn, Cain. Her response is, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, Eve was, understood, was underneath this judgment from God that in childbirth there was going to be the multiplication of Cain. And yet when Cain is born, she could say, I have gotten this child with the assistance or the help of the Lord. That is to say, her faith was in the Lord. And she saw in the Lord that in the birth of this child, in the multiplication of pain, she actually saw his mercy, his help, his assistance. She was recognizing that God was with her in the midst of what was going on. She was believing the promise that God was going to work with her, that even in spite of the difficulties of childbirth, there would be these, chi these children. But I want you to pause for just a moment. The story moves beyond the birth of Cain and Abel quickly to their adulthood. But a careful reader will stop right here and will pause for a moment and, and consider what is going on here in the story. Uh, Adam and Eve know that it's their sin that has broken the world. But with the birth of these boys, they would begin to see a tangible way in which God would begin to answer the depth of the brokenness which they themselves had brought about. The promise can't move forward without the birth of children. It would seem to them that the promise, in some manner, was being literally fulfilled in the birth of their children. We have to stop right there and appreciate that when these 
babies are born, Adam and Eve must have rejoiced in God with faith, believing, yes, the terrible thing we've done, God is at work even in us, even through us, to bring about ultimately that which is going to unbreak the world. But if there's anything that we ever learn from the New Testament, it's that faith is always tested. First Peter, we read this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I want us to understand here is that at the very beginning, the children are born. Do you not think that the readers understood that every time children are born, parents are excited? Good parents. Good parents are excited when children are born. They have a sense of hope, a sense of dreams, a sense of aspiration. The story here can only be read from the commonality of human experiences that have taken place from the very first generation of human beings until even today. It's only the most perverse and wicked kinds of people who do not rejoice at the birth of children. And so we have to imagine that they were rejoicing at the birth of children and, and crediting to God the miracle of these children being born. We have to appreciate that. But then we also need to see that that faith, that joy, that trust in God is going to be tested. Now, of course, testing is God's way, not just for Christians, all the saints of the Old Covenant. Testing, in fact, is the way that God dealt with Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. They were tested. God always tests our trust and our faith to show whether it's genuine or not. And that's, of course, how Adam and Eve felt. <laughs> they didn't trust. They didn't have faith. They trusted in themselves. They had faith in themselves. That's the sad story of Genesis 3. So it shouldn't be surprising that this chapter, the events that are going to occur, which bring about tragedy that is as deep as anything else we can imagine in human history to happen to a family, that this is a testing of their faith. So in chapter 4, what happens? The promise is threatened. The promise of Genesis 3 is deeply, deeply threatened. And that's also, at the same time, a deep testing of their faith. Chapter 4 quickly moves into the awful, tragic, and deep evil of Cain. He murders his brother. Now, think again. What is missing from chapter 4 isn't missing at all. Now, what do I mean by that? We're told in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman shall be at enmity against each other. The offspring of Satan, the offspring of Eve are going to be at enmity with one another. We're told that that's the reality of the world going forward from Adam and Eve. 
Yet on the surface of the story, the only offspring we see are the offspring of Eve. Or do we? What's missing isn't missing at all. Look at the main points of the story. Here's the first thing the story's telling us. Cain is a non-believer. Now that's what the story's telling us. That's what the first readers would have understood. We know this because in verses 4 and 5 we see God's response to the worship of Abel in contrast to the worship of Cain. The Lord respects Abel and his offering, but he doesn't respect Cain and his offering. God accepts the worship of one, he rejects the worship of other. The question is why? Now there's only one biblically right answer. The New Testament tells us the biblically correct answer, and it's this. Hebrews 11, verse 4, comments on Genesis chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. This is what we read in Hebrews 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. Why did God speak well of the offering of Abel? Why did he reject the offering of Cain? It's because Abel offered his offering in faith and trust in the living God, his creator. Cain offered that offering in a false manner as an unbeliever. That's the reason why. That's why Cain's offering and worship was rejected. The sacrifices of the unbeliever are an abomination unto the Lord. Faith. It's faith that made Abel's sacrifice acceptable. Cain didn't have faith. Cain was an unbeliever. Secondly, we see that Cain is a murderer. Verse 8, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were out in the fields that Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Think about the crime. Cain murders his brother who bears the image of God. So it's an attack upon the image of God. But it's more than that. It's not just an attack upon the image of God. Uh, Abel, who is a believer, is an offspring of Eve. Think back to the promise. Cain's murder, murdering as an unbeliever, is an attack against the promise, against the seed of the woman. Cain murders his brother out of this enmity, this hostility that God said was going to exist between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Now, how do we know that that's the correct way of understanding this? Because it's exactly what the New Testament tells us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. That passage about Cain in 1 John is going to tell us that the seed of the serpent is not missing from Genesis chapter 4. That the seed of the serpent is there just as much as the seed of the woman. 1 John 3.12, this is what we read. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. 
To describe Cain as belonging to the evil one is to place Cain, as the New Testament does, in the line of the seed of a serpent, who's at enmity with the seed of the woman. The enmity, the hostility in Cain is what motivated him to kill Abel. The righteous and the godly, the target of the seed of the serpent. That's the tragic reality of this chapter, playing out what God said would happen because of Genesis 3.15. You see, Satan doesn't bide his time and wait for a few generations of human beings to uh, come into play and then sort of sneak in. No. He seizes the very first child who's born into this world, seizes him, possesses him, owns him, and begins this conflict, this hostility, this war between his seed and her seed. That, of course, climaxes at the cross of our Lord Jesus. That's how the promise is threatened. Because now you have Cain, the evil one, the seed of the serpent, under God's judgment, and banished. And the other son the seed of Eve, truly a righteous seed of Eve, a godly believer, dead. Now where does that leave Adam and Eve? What they felt when their children were born has been taken away from them completely. Do you not see that? Do you not, do you not see that in the story? Isn't the story showing us that where they must have been at this point was, in fact, as devastated parents? Our first son, in whom we had such hope, was a murderer. He wasn't my seed, Eve would say. He was Satan's seed from the beginning. And he's been banished away. And my second son, who surely grew up showing himself to be a faithful follower of God, who loved God, who was righteous, who, who lived by faith, is gone. You have, to, you have to appreciate how all hope would practically disappear at this point. Do you think that anyone in the history of redemption had their faith ever tested as strongly or as hard as Adam and Eve had their faith tested? I don't think you can find anyone in all of redemptive history who had to undergo as much testing of their faith as Adam and Eve did at this time. But we know the story doesn't stay this way. Several tr truths emerge, though, from pausing and reflecting upon where they were at this point. Let me just mention some things we can see being shown to us from the story. In the earliest stages of human history, God reveals how wicked human beings already are. The human race doesn't grow into its wickedness. It is broken and 
wicked from the beginning. The rest of the story of Cain, if you looked at it carefully from verses 16 to verses 24, well, it winds up with Lamech beginning polygamy and then boasting about the fact that he has murdered someone for what was really something we would say of a slight infraction, being wounded, not necessarily hurt deeply, being wounded, so he kills the man. Cries that he's going to boast for 70 times the the kind of vengeance that would be upon him as ever upon Cain. We, we further see that the most wicked kinds of human activity ultimately target those who are the seed of the woman, those who are the righteous and the godly, those who want to follow God. History will show continually the war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We also see that those who follow God will invariably have their faith tested. You will invariably have your trust in Christ tested and tested deeply at times where there doesn't look like there is any other kind of hope at all save in God himself. Now, if you've never stopped to think about Genesis chapter 4 and these things, then have you ever really read the story? Have you ever really read and understood what this chapter is about? But the chapter doesn't end with faith being tested and the promise being threatened because we come to the end of chapter 4 and we see that in the birth of Seth, the promise is being restored. The promise is being preserved. So, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring, or another seed, instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now, it's significant that the voice that speaks to us here about the understanding of the birth of Seth is the voice of Eve. Uh, it's very significant. It's almost like she's being prophetic in what she has to say. But she names her son Seth because Seth means appointed. She names her son the appointed one, the one that God is bringing as the substitute and the replacement for Abel. She's, she's pointed to the fact that Seth is now going to be God's guarantee to us that the line is going to continue. The line is going to continue until that greatest of all seed of the woman should come. And then we notice that the promise does, in fact, begin to grow. Verse 26. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The best commentators say this phrase, to call upon the name of the Lord, indicates congregational worship, that people together began to come together to worship the living and the true God. Now, the New Testament has some very significant comments 
on Genesis chapter 4 that directly connect the events of this chapter and the promise to Christ. I want you to think about Luke chapter 3 and the genealogy of Jesus. The difference between the genealogy in Luke and the genealogy in Matthew concerning Jesus is Matthew's genealogy only goes back to Abraham. It's his Jewish lineage. But the lineage that we find in Luke's gospel traces Jesus all the way from Joseph and Mary all the way back, all the way back, all the way back to God. Now listen what it says in the last part of the genealogy of Jesus, chapter 3, verse 38. Speaking of the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke is saying that in this one, the seed of Mary is the seed of the woman. The virgin-born son of Mary is the seed of the woman. And he traces the lineage of Jesus all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 and the birth of Seth, who's the son of Adam, who's the son of God. It's Luke's way of presenting the fulfillment of the promise in his gospel. Hebrews 12, 24, though, also comments back to Genesis chapter 4. Speaking of believers who are coming to God, coming to Christ, and so forth, he says, coming to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Stop for a moment. Did you ever think about the blood of Christ speaking a better word than the blood of Abel? What word did Abel's blood speak? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, we read that God says that the blood of Abel was crying out to him from the ground. It was crying out for justice. It was crying out for vengeance. And in that sense, Abel, in his death, is a type of all of those seed of the woman who have suffered and died at the hands of the seed of the serpent. Believers who are targets of the murderous intent of the seed of the serpent in this world. But Abel's blood can only cry out for justice and vengeance. The blood of Christ speaks the better word. It speaks the word of atonement and sins paid for and righteousness and justification. And so we read these words in the New Testament concerning the blood of Christ, that God put forward his son Jesus as a propitiation in his blood. Therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, and even more, we shall be saved from the wrath of God by him. For in Christ we have redemption 
through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. For God reconciled to himself all things through Christ, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, by the means of his own blood. Christ secured an eternal redemption. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The blood of Christ, the payment for our sin, that satisfies the holy justice of God. Which is why as believers we can sing with the hymn writer Horatio Spafford, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And therefore, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Our God and Father, you have given us all things in Christ. Remind us again and again that in the breaking of the world, what Adam and Eve did is our sin too. And we deserve nothing, nothing, nothing at all but the judgment of your wrath and your curse. And yet even to our first parents, you promised that you would send a deliverer, the very seed of the woman, the seed of Eve, who is the seed of Mary even our Lord Jesus, who suffered and shed his blood for our sins. Father, today, we thank you for the greatness of this story. We thank you that we are part of this great story, and that in Jesus we have everlasting life. For that we give you praise and glory and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close and sing in hymn number 691, It Is Well With My Soul. Hymn 691, let's stand.